Hi, this is Flita with Women Ministering, and today we are looking at 11 characteristics of a successful marriage, and we're also including some information about ministry and marriage as we go through this. So whether you're in ministry or not, if you're married, um, then you might find that your marriage has kind of slipped into last place on your list of priorities. That can happen to everybody, no matter what. Because unfortunately, the pressures and demands of ministry and life can be really great. And as Christians, it's especially important to be focused on loving each other in a biblical way that enhances your love. So let's look at 11 characteristics of a successful marriage. Now, characteristic means it's the peculiar quality of a person or thing, what's typical or distinctive. So each one of us have characteristics or parts of our character that kind of distinguish us from other people. We share many of the same characteristics as others, but we express them in unique ways and to a different degree. Most successful marriages have certain characteristics in common. Those marriages are founded on biblical principles, and they may not even know that it's founded on biblical principles, but it probably is. And maintaining the common goal to be like Christ, um, those marriages should be the most successful. But it's easy to forget that when life takes over. You know, pastors end up being divorced. Christian people end up being divorced. The divorce rate amongst Christians is the same as it is in the world. Um, but sometimes pastors or, you know, really committed Christians will end up just living together and staying together because they made a vow, they made a commitment, but they don't even like each other. They're staying together out of obligation. That can happen to anybody. Uh, most people take that vow very seriously, but then as things come along in life, it's easy to put it aside um, we're human, and we take things for granted. And so as we look at the 11 characteristics of a successful marriage, just find the ones you may be doing great. If you are, that's wonderful. But there might be one or two that need some reinforcing in your relationship. Successful is not measured by years or by things or by comparison. It isn't about numbers. Um, a couple can stay married for 60 years, but have been miserable for 59 of those years, and it's, it doesn't represent success. Um, I know people who stayed together even though they don't even like each other, like I said, um, but they just were committed to those vows. So having a successful marriage encompasses factors that lead to a deep and lasting love and to friendship for a, a lifetime. If you're in any type of ministry, it's vital to remember that your family comes before your ministry, and that can be really easy to forget. I've been in ministry most of my life, and the demands and pressures are huge. You're helping people, you feel a commitment to that, but your family suffers. In or outside the church, whether you're staff or volunteer, or you're not in a ministry at all, your family comes first, and that's just the way it has to be. 
So the very first characteristic of a successful marriage is an equal commitment to faith, Christ, and marriage. 2 Peter 1.5 says, Devote yourselves to lavishly supplementing your faith with goodness. There's devotion in relationships. First comes our faith in Christ. That provides a common goal to represent Jesus and the bride of Christ through this earthly relationship that we call marriage. And that sounds like a pretty lofty goal. And unfortunately, the two people might have really different ideas about how that's going to be accomplished. Um, Sometimes men are given the impression that they're to be the boss rather than the servant. Jesus is the example for husband and wife in marriage, and he didn't come to be served. He came to be the servant of all. And so since we're his, we are also servants. I've been in the position of being the pastor's wife and the pastor, and both are wonderful roles, but there are so many unspoken expectations. Um, She needs to be involved in everything, or she needs to just smile, be sweet, and bake cookies. She needs to play the piano, teach children's ministry while she's being hospitable and having everybody over to her house while she's leading women's ministry. At the same time, she has a husband and family to take care of and be an example to the church. And the pastor has those same, the husband, if he's the pastor, has those same pressures You feel like you're expected to be all things to all people. And it really isn't that, but sometimes that's how it feels. And it doesn't matter whether it's a big church or a little church. Needs and expectations are demanding. So whether you have a ministry inside or outside the church, the demands and expectations are there. They're weighty, and they can gradually become a burden that we don't even realize we're struggling with. And in the process, the marriage suffers. Um, If we look at the biblical explanation of the roles of husband and wife, we see a husband who is the head, but like Christ, lays down his life for his family. The wife, who's equal to her husband, voluntarily submits to him. It's not submission on demand. It's submission voluntarily as he exhibits the Christ-like qualities that he needs to exhibit, and so does she. In the kingdom, we're both equal and we're both the bride. You're equals who've agreed to demonstrate, again, that relationship, that mystery of Christ and his bride. And that knowledge that man or woman, you're part of the bride of Christ, should eliminate the idea of one who's the master because that job was filled by Jesus. He is our master for both of us. There are roles that we take on in life to demonstrate how the church submits to Christ and how Christ leads his church. But again, your equals who agreed to demonstrate that relationship Both of them need to have uh, the same level of commitment to their faith. Now, faith is a huge subject, and it encompasses every area of our life in conjunction with our relationship to God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now, there are marriages that succeed 
without agreement about faith. They've reached an agreement, but maybe they don't go to the same church or practice the same faith. And I know people who do that, and they do it successfully. So I'm not saying that it can't be done. I'm saying that ideally, you would both be practicing the same faith, have the same goal that you're working toward. Um, marriages who can do that, I mean, that's really a tribute to the love and respect that they have for each other. You also need a commitment to Christ. If you're Christians, you need a commitment to Christ. It's a personal decision. When the two become one, that commitment should positively affect the relationship. But each one is responsible for their own relationship with Christ. The Christian husband doesn't have to answer for his wife before God, only himself and vice versa. So both need to be committed to a growing and enriching relationship with the Savior. As you're growing in Christ, your marriage will grow in a positive direction. Don't let ministry take away from the continued spiritual growth of your own relationship with your Savior. It's really easy to have that happen. I've been in situations where I'm writing Bible studies, I'm checking the sermon, I'm doing all these other things in a small church, and I would forget to nurture my own life with Christ. And I had to make a conscious commitment and decision to do that. You make a commitment to marriage. When my late husband and I married, we made a decision at the very beginning that the word divorce would not be used. This is before we were even both saved. Um, we just, that wasn't going to be part of our vocabulary no matter what happened in our marriage. And we honored that commitment. And when we said our vows, it was until death did finally part us. But we were committed to make the changes, the sacrifices, and the work that are involved in staying married. And more than just staying married, because remember we talked about the fact that it's not about how many years you've been married, but it was also to stay in love. We were best friends for life. If you have that level of commitment, it leads to a successful marriage because you close that quick escape door. You're not always thinking about how you can get out of it. Um, you're, think, you're focused on how to make it better and better, how to make it work. The second characteristic is an equal commitment to sacrifice. Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Be free from pride-filled opinions, for they will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts, but in authentic humility, put others first and view others as more important than yourselves. Abandon every display of selfishness. Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. Now, sacrifice can sound kind of ominous, but whether we like it or not, all successful relationships involve voluntary sacrifice by both people. It's not one-sided. One-sided sacrifice is eventually going to erode the relationship. Somebody's going to be really unhappy. 
And so it needs to be equal commitment. Um, it destroys love if it's one-sided. If you're all in, if you're committed, if both of you are committed, then it means you're willing to make the changes to compromise and come to an agreement on differences. And I know some people, oh, you should never compromise. Life is based on compromise. Nothing is ideal. And so we make compromises. I'm not talking about compromising your faith, that if your spouse asks you to go rob a bank, that you just make a compromise and decide you'll only rob one bank. That's not what we're talking about. But there is compromise in marriage in order to make everything work smoothly together. And often when you're first married, you don't think that problem would ever exist. But marriage is two separate people trying to merge. And merging requires give and take, compromise, and a love that wants the best for each other. So if one is unwilling to make any self-sacrifice or to compromise in any way, the marriage will suffer and probably won't last. Successful marriages consist of a loving compromise and willingness. You want to work things out for the good of both of you and for your children if you have them. In ministry, you might need to compromise on the time spent in serving that ministry. Um, kind of like a couple where one of them's called away to military service. Hopefully you agreed on that beforehand and you know how to cope with it and deal with it because you came to an agreement on that. There's an agreement to sacrifice. However, when you're in ministry, you sometimes feel forced to forget your agreement at home because the needs of the people are so great. But rather than allowing that to become commonplace, you need to check in with each other regularly to ensure the health of your marriage and your relationship. Then be willing to figure out how to change whatever's going on without sacrificing your marriage. And that can be done. It may not be easy and you might have some unhappy people in your church, but your marriage comes first. The third characteristic is an equal commitment to serving. Galatians 5.13 says, Beloved ones, God has called us to live a life of freedom in the Holy Spirit, but don't view this wonderful freedom as an opportunity to set up a base of operations in the natural realm. Freedom means that we become so completely free of self-indulgence that we become servants of one another, expressing love in all we do. When two people love each other, they will happily serve each other. Now, like every other characteristic, if it's one-sided, hurt and alienation are going to happen. And you're serving because you want to, not because it's demanded. The husband is to serve his wife, and the wife is to serve her husband. Neither one is a slave or subservient to the other, because as we said, they are equals who serve like Christ did, and he didn't look at his position. In Philippians, it says that he took no thought of that, and he was willing to become a man and endure everything he endured. He could have exercised great power, but he didn't. 
And serving also requires discussion about each other's likes and needs. In ministry, you're serving others. Their needs should not take priority over the needs of your spouse and children. Yes, occasionally they will, but it shouldn't be all the time, and it needs to be very carefully monitored. Your family comes first, and if you're overwhelmed in ministry needs, then you need to get some help, but don't neglect your family. Characteristic number four is an equal commitment to friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says, A dear friend will love you no matter what, and a family sticks together through all kinds of trouble. And I just don't think you can overemphasize the need to have friendship be part of your, the big equation in your family. My husband is my best friend. Now, are there things that I might rather talk to a, another woman about? Well, yeah, and that's good. But overall, my husband is my best friend. Um, I like this definition of friend that I found in the Urban Dictionary. It says, a friend is someone you love and who loves you, someone you respect and who respects you, someone whom you trust and who trusts you. A friend is honest and makes you want to be honest too. A friend is loyal. A friend is someone for whom you're willing to change your opinions. A friend is someone you look forward to seeing and who looks forward to seeing you. Someone you like so much, it doesn't matter if you share interests or traits. A friend is someone you like so much, you start to like the things they like. A friend is a partner, not a leader or a follower. I was only part of the definition. Um, there was love, respect, trust, honesty, loyalty, compromise, change, differences, acceptance, forgiveness, and much more. But you're not clones of each other, and you don't sacrifice who you are in order to have that friendship. You maintain your own identity, your own likes and dislikes and characteristics, and you honor that same thing in your friend. I have friends who are totally polar opposite of me, but we are close friends who love and respect each other, including respecting and honoring our differences. Friends that are married can do the same thing. You don't get married to change the other person. You get married because you love the other person so much that you want to spend a lifetime together. And your differences can complement each other. If you're in ministry, people should be able to see the friendship between you and your spouse. And really, that's true whether you're in ministry or not. People, you can see a couple and know whether they're friends or not. And it's important that you have that, that you cultivate that aspect of friendship. Um, point number five is an equal commitment to give room to change and grow. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But continue to grow and increase in God's grace and intimacy with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May he receive all the glory both now and until the day eternity begins. Continue to grow and increase in God's grace and in intimacy with our Lord and Savior. Throughout life, we change and grow. Um, the person I was when I first got married is different than the person I was 40 years later. My first husband and I got married when we were 16 and 17, 
And by the time I was 40, I was a very different person than I was when I was 16. We had grown, matured, and changed. So did my husband. It's a normal part of life, and something that you may have just loved to do at 20 might be something you really don't like to do at age 40 because you changed. Maybe your spouse still loves to do that particular thing, and that's great, and they should. They can go do it with their friends and not take your withdrawal from that activity as a personal insult. And for you, don't take it as an insult that they wanted to continue with that activity. Give each other room to change and grow. We need to expect change and allow for it. When my first husband was 61, he bought a motorcycle and I didn't want anything to do it with it. I was just happy for him that finally he could engage in something that he had wanted to do for a long time. Now, ultimately, I did end up riding as well, and we loved for many years, had a wonderful time uh, riding and taking trips. Since his death, I remarried, and my new husband has no interest in riding, but he's perfectly happy that I continue to do what I love. We're together, but we like different things. And we also have lots of things in common. You're not clones of each other. You don't have to both do the same thing at the same time in order to have a successful marriage. If that happens naturally, that's awesome. If it doesn't, that's fine too. It's okay to be different from each other. Marriage does not mean the loss of your individuality. That isn't what becoming one means. You become one in your heart and soul, but you're still two distinct individuals. You become one flesh in intimacy, but you don't merge into one human being. You need to allow for differences in ministry style and areas of ministry that you're interested in. Maybe children's ministry was your passion for years, but your life has changed and now you want to do some outreach ministry. Let the changes take place and don't feel like you have to be twins. Um, characteristic number six is an equal commitment to forgiveness and humility. Colossians 3.13 says, Tolerate the weaknesses of those in the family of faith, forgiving one another in the same way you have been graciously forgiven by Jesus Christ. If you find fault with someone, release this same gift of forgiveness to them. We need to be quick to ask for and to give forgiveness. Don't let some careless word spoken in anger become a mountain between you. Um, asking for forgiveness is an act of humility if it's done truthfully, not just as a show. And somebody knows when you're being genuine or when you're not. Um, when you're genuine in wanting forgiveness, you've humbled yourself and acknowledged your wrongdoing. You don't try to shift the blame. You don't come and say, well, I'm really sorry, but you did blah, 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 blah. No. You just come and you say, you know what, I'm sorry. I said something I shouldn't have said, and I know that it hurt you, and I never want to do that, and I'm asking for your forgiveness. There's no blame shifting. Maybe the other person did make a mistake, but your responsibility is you. 
Um, you can humble yourself and acknowledge your wrongdoing. It doesn't have to be the end of the world or your marriage. Just be humble enough to admit when you've messed up and sinned or hurt the other person. Romans 12.3 says, Because of the grace allotted, me, allotted to me, I can respect excuse me, I can respectfully tell you not to think of yourselves as being more important than you are. Devote your minds to sound judgment since God has assigned to each of us a measure of faith. Go to God and ask for forgiveness. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Have sound judgment. Go to your spouse as quickly as you can. You might need to calm down first. If you had a pretty hot argument, you're probably both going to need to calm down and cool off before you come together to reconcile. If you're still really angry, um, that's not the time to ask for forgiveness. You need to go deal with your own problem and then go back in sincerity. Humility in life is what allows us to maintain a correct perspective on our importance. I have faults and flaws. My husband has faults and flaws. If I forget about mine and just start focusing on his, I get angry and self-righteous. I'm going to become judgmental and I'm going to say things that hurt. And whenever I start feeling that for my own personal practice, I quickly remind myself of all the weird ways I have, my flaws, my faults, that my husband is patiently putting up with in me. You're not perfect and neither is your spouse. So when you get to feeling like you need to correct them all the time, you need a session in God's mirror. God sees your heart, all the good, and he sees all of the bad. You need to go to his mirror, take a look, and repent of pride, then go to your spouse and ask for forgiveness. Don't falsely spiritualize your actions, saying that they should be able to receive godly correction. Well, maybe they should, but not in an embarrassing, hurtful, or humiliating way. And so you need to change. Your observation might have been correct, but you lacked all discretion and love because if you read 1 Corinthians 13, that's not how love acts. You lacked discretion, mercy, kindness, and tact, and you need to apologize and ask for forgiveness. Characteristic number seven is an equal commitment to kindness. Ephesians 4.32 says, But instead, be kind and affectionate toward one another. Has God graciously forgiven you? Then graciously forgive one another in the depths of Christ's love. Kindness is this wonderful, soothing characteristic. A kind word can put out a fire, and a kind person is definitely a gift to this world. You know a kind person when you meet them. They don't walk up and say, hey, I'm a really kind person. You're going to really like me. You just know it. You see their demeanor, the way they talk, the way they act, and you know whether or not they're a kind person. Jesus was kind. When he could have berated and belittled people, and he could have, he chose not to. He showed love in the highest way by dying for you and me, and his kindness is shown in his mercy and grace. 
Kindness is defined as a quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. And there are aspects of acceptance, patience, and gentleness in kindness, along with caring and being helpful. And kindness toward your spouse is going to create an atmosphere that you can both thrive in. Each one has to make an individual decision to cultivate kindness in their life because kindness can be seen and it can be felt. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit and an aspect of our character that we are told to possess. And yes, sometimes being kind can be really hard. There are mean people in this world and it isn't always easy to give a kind word to someone who's full of hate. But the Bible doesn't say, be kind if it's easy. It says we just need to be kind. And that's how it's supposed to be. So let it start at home with the most important relationship you have with your spouse and children. And I'm telling you, if everybody practiced the sacrificial love of Jesus and kindness, this world would be a different place. And yes, that's probably pie in the sky thinking, but it can happen in your home with your spouse and children, and that's where it starts. Characteristic number eight is an equal commitment to honesty, which equals trust. Ephesians 4.25 says, so discard every form of dishonesty and lying so that you will be known as one who always speaks the truth, for we all belong to one another. Don't lie. It's really that simple. Don't lie. One lie leads to another, and most lies eventually come out, and the destruction is immense. Lies destroy trust. And whether we like it or not, trust is earned. I, if I meet you, I don't trust you just because you tell me that you're a trustworthy person. No, I watch you. I check on you, I test you to see whether or not you really are trustworthy. You have to earn my trust over a period of time as we interact with each other. And the, the bad thing about it is that one lie can wipe out the whole thing. Telling the truth can hurt the other person, but that hurt can be healed through repentance and forgiveness and while it may be hurtful, um, there are ways in certain situations to tell the truth without hurting the other person. Um, you may tell them a sin that you committed, and you're going to have to earn their trust back. But it's possible that a hurt caused by a lie can never be healed, and trust can't be restored. That happens in life. If you want to be trusted, be honest, even when it hurts or embarrasses you. Now, sometimes we can use truth as a weapon, and we know exactly what we're doing. We say something, and it deeply hurts the other person, just like we knew it would, and our excuse is, oh, I was just telling the truth. The problem is this. You didn't care if they were hurt, and you are wrong. Because sometimes the truth just doesn't have to be spoken. You can pray for that person. Pray for yourself and put it in God's hands. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. And I think 
that that means hard, to not harshly expose someone. Instead, your love covers their sin. Knowing that they're going to be crushed by what you say is not Christ-like. Jesus didn't do that to us. We don't have to air all our sins before we're saved by his grace. And cruelty is not in Jesus' character, and it shouldn't be in ours. Now, there might be times that you have to go to, um, say, a child who's getting involved in drugs or something like that, and you have to share some hard truths to them, truths that may hurt. However, you care you don't want them to be hurt, but you also, over and above that, want them to be safe and to stop doing something destructive. And that's a whole other category. But in talking about it in marriage, um, we need to tell the truth and do it with kindness and gentleness. If your spouse lies to you, then you're going to have to decide whether you'll practice forgiveness or not. There are some issues that might require time apart, or it might permanently sever the relationship. Infidelity is one of those things that can permanently destroy a relationship. Maybe the husband learns that his wife has cheated on him and lied to him. She admits it. She says she's sorry, and they try to keep going, and then it happens again. Trust is completely destroyed, and he can't reconcile with her. Lies destroy love and trust. Don't lie. Number nine is an equal commitment to communication. Ephesians 4.29 says, Never let ugly or hateful words come from your mouth, but instead let your words become beautiful gifts that encourage others. Do this by speaking words of grace to help them. So your words are beautiful gifts that encourage others, and your words of grace help them. Now, communication is the one out of all 11 of the characteristics that requires time. All of them require a decision. In fact, they require a lifetime of decisions because you may have decided to be kind one day and the next day you're in a really bad mood and you don't want to be nice to anybody, <laughs> but you make a decision to be kind. Communication is a decision and it's also time involved. Um, maybe you're headed out the door to work. Your wife has just gotten off the phone. There's a terrible situation in the family. You take a second to listen to it and you say, honey, I want to hear all of this. It's really important to me and I want to hear you and I want to help, but I have to go to work. So meet me at 11 o'clock and we will talk about this. I can give you my whole lunch hour for that. Instead of saying, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Well, I'm sorry. Look, I got to go. There's a big difference in those two styles of communication. Sometimes one of you will have to learn to be able to communicate. Um, it's also an area where we might have expectations of our spouse being just like us in regard to communication. And usually that's not the case. When I was a kid, I shut down all my emotions because of a bad childhood. I made a decision that if I didn't let myself feel, I couldn't be hurt. 
Well, that was a very childish, incorrect decision that caused its own set of, my, of problems in my life. And then I married a man who communicated every feeling he had. <laughs> and he would ask me how I felt, and I would say, I, I don't know. To him, that was absolutely incomprehensible. And we had some pretty good fights over that. And I was finally able to explain to him um, that it was just that I needed time in order to figure out how I felt about whatever the situation was. And while it was still difficult for him, he agreed to give me that time. And I agreed to work on finding my emotions. So we came together to work out uh, a way to solve this difference between us. Make the commitment to try. Work out methods to help each other communicate. Don't expect to be identical in your communication styles. And don't try to change the other person. You just make the changes you need to make and continue to com communicate <laughs> about all of it. Ask for what you need and then agree to help each other get there. One-sided communication is not communication. It's just one person talking. A conversation involves at least two people who are talking. One listens as the other talks and then they reverse roles. They don't scream at each other. They talk, discuss, disagree, find a compromise, and they communicate their feelings, their attitudes, um, what they're thinking. That's communication. And it takes time to figure out your style as a couple and to come to a solution that works for both of you. So give it time, but be committed to making it happen. Sometimes, uh, depending on your job or if you're in ministry, you may have spent so much time talking to people that by the time you get home, you don't want to talk to anybody for a week. When I founded an outreach to victims of domestic violence and sexual assault, I would spend all day, every day, listening and talking to people who were in deep stress and trauma. And by the time I got home, I was drained. But when I got, when you get home, when I got home, I had a husband there who wanted to communicate and I wanted to communicate with him. You have people who want to interact with you. So you need to work out a way to give yourself a little more time to unwind and be quiet and then come to your family and give them all the love and interaction that they deserve and need. Don't let your job or your ministry turn you into a dry desert. Point number 10 is an equal commitment to abstain from manipulation. Manipulation is a dead-end behavior. Nobody likes to be manipulated. It causes anger, resentment, loss of, of trust because it's dishonest. Manipulation is a way to get your own way. And it can be done through tears or anger. And either way, you're destroying the relationship in the process, and it won't work forever. It might work for a little while, but it isn't going to work forever because eventually the other person is either going to stand up to it or walk away or both. It ends friendships and relationships. Most of the problems we've already talked about 
here are all based in selfishness. We want our own way. We want everybody to do what we want, when we want it, and the way we want it, and to always have it be like that. Now, that's childish. Bullies are manipulative. They're mean, they're selfish, and they're childish. And using force, anger, tears, self-pity, manipulation, and lies, that's all selfishness, and it's cruel. And that's blunt, but it's true. That's what it is. Bullies are childish. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be living based on love, and that love is unselfish. It's kind and honest, and it doesn't manipulate because it isn't self-seeking. Um, on the blog at the end, I have a copy of 1 Corinthians 13, which is the chapter on love from the Passion Translation, and boy, it spells things out. And if we all use this as our guide for marriage, there would only be successful marriages. But our old man is steeped in self-seeking and self-pity and self-satisfaction. That's who our old man is. And we have to fight him, and we have to continually take him off and replace him with Christ, in whom there is no trace of selfishness. Selfishness is Satan's favorite tool. It's his nature. He lies, manipulates, steals, kills, and destroys, all to satisfy his own selfish desires. And we are not to be like him in any way. Proverbs 11:17 says a man or a woman, a person of kindness attracts favor, while a cruel person attracts nothing but trouble. Then there's spiritual manipulation, and that's the worst. When somebody says, God told me, what are you going to say in return? You're going to have to call them a liar or confront that somehow if it's not biblical. Or what if your spouse begins to throw scriptures around, like, you're supposed to sit, submit to me, I'm the head of the family. Or the wife throws it back at the husband. Well, you're supposed to be self-sacrificing like Jesus. That's manipulation. Jesus never used his power or his position to manipulate people. He never shamed them into obedience or manipulated in any way. Jesus could have zapped the Pharisees with a lightning bolt while saying, vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. But he didn't. He served and he used his power to benefit all mankind for eternity rather than just himself for a short time. If that's the only way you can handle your family is through anger, power plays, um, outbursts of crying and emotion by being belligerent and manipulative, you need to get some help for yourself and your entire family. And I'm not saying that um, in a downgrading way. I'm saying that honestly. If that's the only way that you can manage your family and you call yourself a Christian, you need to find some help. Go to somebody and get some help. That's true whether it's the wife or the husband. Um, and if that's the only way you can handle your children, then you need some help. The very last characteristic, number 11, is an equal commitment to laughter and joy. 
Nehemiah 8.10 says, Go back to your homes and prepare a feast. Bring out the best food and drink you have and welcome all to your table, especially those who have nothing. This day is special. It's sacred to our Lord. Don't grieve over your past mistakes. Let the Eternal's own joy be your protection. Have fun together. Don't turn marriage and family into some deadly serious task that you've got to accomplish and you've got to do it all correctly. Marriage is meant to be a source of joy. Have fun together. Laugh at yourselves. Find joy. My first husband and I, one day we were in the kitchen facing each other across the kitchen counter arguing. And I don't remember what we were arguing about. And we stopped for a minute and I looked up at him and I asked, what are we arguing about? I couldn't, I couldn't remember even then what started the argument. And he looked back at me and he said, I don't remember. And we both just started laughing because it was so silly. We were both being ridiculous. We're standing there arguing and we don't even remember why, what started it. You need to rejoice in what you have instead of in obsessing over what's missing. Nobody's life is perfect, but you can't focus on all the imperfections all the time. You have an imperfect spouse and your spouse has an imperfect spouse. You're equal, so rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord and each other. Find ways to relax, smile, share a joke. Let peace flow between you and have fun. Yes, you're going to go through hard times, but even in those, you can still find a reason to smile and laugh, even if it's just at the dog. Focus on the good and not the bad, and find the good every day in your life and in each other. And again, I thank you for listening. As I said on the blog down at the bottom, there is a download of 1 Corinthians 13 for you um, to look at and consider and think about maybe in those times when things are hard. And I thank you, and I will see you again next time. God bless all of you.